Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Mike Miller is the Chief Operating Officer at Advisors Excel and Chief Executive Officer of the company's wholly owned subsidiary, Go Modern, both located in Topeka, Kansas. Prior to joining Advisors Excel in 2013, Mike spent 20 years in the manufacturing industry holding executive positions in operations, finance, and corporate development. Mike has a bachelor's degree in finance from Kansas State University and currently serves on the advisory board for the financial planning degree program at Kansas State. Mike, welcome to the Second Command Podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. So Advisors Excel, I've known you guys now for probably four or five, maybe six years. Um, talk to me, maybe just tell our listener what Advisors Excel does and give us some, some rough idea on the scope of the organization because you're a much bigger organization than I first even anticipated. Yeah, we, we basically service independent financial advisors. So an advisor that doesn't have a relationship with a, a Wells Fargo or a Citibank or something like that. Um, these guys are truly entrepreneurs. They've, they've set up their own business. Uh, we serve them in a number of different ways. We Advisors Excel is kind of an umbrella company. We've got a number of different businesses underneath that. So on the insurance side, we act as a distribution partner to insurance carriers, right. distributing annuities, life insurance, and Medicare supplements. Um, on the wealth management side, we've got a broker dealer, and then we've got um, it's an RIA, a registered investment advisory business, but it's set up as an asset management platform. So our advisors are actually managing uh, money for their clients. They use us for technology, for access to product, uh, access to um, access to money managers, so it, institutional money managers, portfolios, things like that. So. Um, that that's kind of the core of the business, but then we also surround them from the business side with a number of different things. Um, we have an in-house, in-house ad agency that basically builds and hosts websites, uh, does PR, design services. We own a print company that does a lot of their print marketing stuff for them. Um, we co-host radio and TV shows with our advisors from our office here in Topeka around the country. Um, We've got basically an operational support team. That's, main, that's my main uh, focus, really helping advisors open accounts, transfer assets, uh, service business, things like that. Um, we've got a compliance department that helps our advisors stay in compliance with all the different regulatory bodies like the SEC and FINRA and mm-hmm. uh, Insurance Commission. Um, we've got a large technology group that actually manages their on-site technology assets and their, um, their infrastructure there. And then we've also got a business coaching group that really is helping the, the advisor with the practice and, you know, everything from managing employees and payroll and stuff like that to how to market and grow their business. So that was the part that I first connected with you guys on um, a few years ago was related to the business coaching component of it. And I thought about it as it related to franchise companies that I'd built, that the more that we helped grow our franchisees, the bigger their businesses would be, the more royalty revenue we would collect or the more products they would buy, the more money we'd make. So the more that I helped our franchisees grow, the more that we grew. And it was almost backwards. Most 
organizations didn't do that. Is that what's made you stand out from the rest? Um, I think what stands out, you know, for us, and, and this is early on, the, the company is only 15 years old, but our founders basically saw an opportunity to not only distribute product and make, you know, basically it's the, it's the insurance carriers that pay us on the insurance side. It's not our advisors. So we're distributing that product to the advisor. But when we surrounded them with all of these other um, support aspects to their business, again, being, you know, entrepreneurs wearing all the hats themselves, this ended up being a great um, support system for them to help them come up with ideas. We've got a lot of networking events. We'll do about 60 events a year for our advisors where they're actually net networking with other independent advisors and being able to bounce ideas off each other and stuff. Mm -hmm. But really surrounding them with all those support things, I think was the unique um, driver of Advisors Excel's growth. And a lot of the, a lot of companies in our industry have really followed that, that model now. So there's a lot of folks that are trying to set up that same model really for their advisors. Sure. So, and now would you, so would you compete against a Wells Fargo? Would that be a, a competitor of yours, at least in this niche of attracting more of the, the brokers into your model or? Do you, not, not really. It's, not really? it's really kind of a different mindset. So somebody that joins a Wells Fargo and wants to be a, a wealth manager for them, they're going to get their clients from Wells Fargo. They're going to get all the support. It's almost a prescribed um, model for those guys. We call it captive. Yeah. So they don't have a choice for, you know, what marketing funnels they're going after or what technologies they're using or how they're investing their, their clients money or anything. It's pretty much prescribed to them to where, you know, our entrepreneurial advisors really get to make all those decisions. Okay. And, and from a business standpoint, I tell you, there, there's some difficulty with that because you're, you're managing a lot of different preferences and, and styles of business leaders and stuff like that. So um, it becomes, somewhat customized on our side to, to deal with different business models that they're going after. That makes sense. So, so you, and you guys are definitely more that entrepreneurial crowd than any of these other groups are as well. Would you compete against ad agencies or is it kind of like you've got different little kind of death by a thousand cuts in every little group or, or is it once you get these advisors into your group, you've got them? Well, when it comes to a lot of the different support pieces, so the operational support, the ad agencies, you know, even compliance and things like that, those are the things that we don't charge our advisors for. So we basically make money as they bring more assets on the platform and as they sell more insurance products and stuff. So, you know, if it's not free, it's, it's deeply subsidized hmm. and um, it just makes the service really stickier for us. And, we would compete with an ad agency. So, you know, an advisor could go to an ad agency to develop a marketing campaign or a branding strategy or something like that, but they could also come to us and we would kind of offer that same service for, you know, either free or, or deeply subsidized. Interesting. So all of those extra services that you're doing are the way to make it stickier to bring them in because you you found your one revenue stream and rather than being greedy and making money off everything, you're making money off the core. Right. Right. But all those things that we do really help them build and drive their business. Um, we've got a pretty good reputation of taking a, well, I guess we start with kind of a base level of advisors. So you have to be pretty successful to even sign up with Advisors Excel. Mm -hmm. For us to put this much effort and, and time and energy behind an advisor, we have to know that they can succeed. So we, we take kind of the cream of the crop to start with, but then um, our ability to grow those guys. So they may come to us as a $5 million advisor, meaning they've gathered $5 million in assets in the last year. 
and get them up to 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollars a year run rate just with the ability to help them market better and um, streamline their business and run it better. Interesting. Okay. What was it that attracted you into Advisors Excel? And how long have you been there? I've been there seven years. Um, it's kind of a unique story. I spent most of my uh, career in manufacturing. Um, I got my degree in finance, but and was always in finance and operational roles, but always on the manufacturing side. Uh, we sold a manufacturing company in 2008, and I went and got licensed to be a wealth manager to start my own practice. That was my uh, that was my plan coming out of selling that company. Yep. And I met the owners of Advisors Excel then. The company was only three years old, but just in the interview, the, the energy level. And I mean, it was, it was attractive. It, you know, it looked like a fun place to be. And um, I had heard great things. I, I've got some, some friends that knew the owners that had started it and they spoke very highly of them. Uh, that actually didn't work out back then. I, I ended up taking another job with Bic and spending about four or five years there. Came back when these guys were a little bigger and they needed a real chief operating officer and it's just worked out great. It's funny. I was at a friend's house for dinner last night. He made one of the best steaks I've ever had in my life. But um, we were talking about a year and a half ago, two years ago, he was recruiting a chief operating officer. And I'd introduced him to somebody from the CO Alliance and who had, she'd left the position she was in. And I thought it's perfect fit, but she was a little more expensive than he wanted. And, and I was partially kind of going, I don't know if he's ready for her, man. Like she's really <laughs> good and she could really knock the cover off the ball, but he's not quite as global as he needs to be. And it didn't work out. They, were, they weren't ready. She wasn't quite ready. And then like a year later, she circled back and started talking to him. Well, it's been 11 months now that she's been working with him as a COO, but he was totally ready. Now he's like, God, I couldn't even do business without her. I'm like, you know, it, it's funny how there, there needs to be a time for that skill set between the COO to work out. So what was it that was ready when you came back the second time? Uh, it was just the scale of the business. Um, you know, they'd scaled it up. I was around employee number 200 at that point. And when um, you're first looking at them, employee number what would you have been? 20? Uh, probably 50, 40, 50. Somewhere yes. around there, so probably. they didn't have a management team yet really, right? Or a, a strong leadership team or? No, I, I, they were starting to build it out, but really it was three founders that started the company all with kind of unique skill sets and they were able to handle it from their, from their chair. And, you know, they've, they've added leadership over time. But the one thing that, that none of them really gravitated towards, I guess. They're, they're more sales and marketing personalities, um, all very entrepreneurial. Uh, the operational aspects of running a business really kind of just wore them out. Mm. Um, you know, that, that wasn't their passion. That's, that's not what they wanted to be involved with. They were really looking for somebody they could turn the operational piece over to, yeah. know it was taken care of, and then focus on what's next for the company from a growth standpoint. And you know, take that out, take that piece off their plate was what they were looking for, I think. So I've met one of the founders, uh, David Callanan. Who are the other two? Uh, Cody Foster is the other one. And then uh, the third founder's out of the business now. Derek Thompson was, uh, was one of the founders of it, though. Okay. And I have met Cody before, too. Um, so what was it that they liked about you? Do you know what it was? Have they told you since? Or did they tell you at the time what it was that they liked about you? Didn't really tell me at the time. It was, uh, it was kind of a different interview, quite honestly. Um, I, I don't think they had a real grasp of what they needed. They knew they knew the outcome that they wanted, but they didn't really know what they needed. Um, now, since then, actually, David said to me one time, you know, we wanted you in here when things didn't go right, because we've had a lot of success and things were going right. And, you know, 
we want the guy that's been through the mud and everything else and could, could get us through the tough times. And that's one of the things we liked about you coming in here. Interesting. So they weren't, they weren't trying to avoid conflict. They just wanted, they were getting prepared for the inevitable road bumps. Yeah. Okay. And, and it was a learning curve when I, when I joined this company, I mean, I was giving them, you know, a lot of data and operational um, reports and stuff like that. And, and they just really didn't have any desire at all to see it. Um, they wanted the best service they could get for their advisors. <clears throat> and as long as they were getting that, they didn't need a lot of data and stuff supporting it. Mm. I also came in again, because of being in a manufacturing background, looking for efficiencies and cost cutting opportunities and stuff like that. And that also was not, um, not core to their mindset. I mean, they were looking for growth and almost looked at cost cutting as, you know, taking the focus off of the growth that, that they wanted to have. So they actually asked me not to bring them cost savings. It's interesting how so many entrepreneurs miss that opportunity. I'm, I'm probably more like you that I'm, I still believe in that bootstrapping and kind of entrepreneurial side that I'd rather grow big, but act small. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't ever want to get rid of that entrepreneurial side of, of the business's culture just because we can grow revenue doesn't mean you want to waste money at the same time. Right. How have you changed over the years as a leader? And how long have you been there now total? Eight years? Seven years here. Seven years? Yeah. Yeah. How, how have you had to adapt or change as a leader? Um, well, honestly, this, so just in the last seven years, I would say I've probably changed more than I have in my entire career. The, the culture of this company is unlike anything I've ever been around. Um, our employees are, are excited to come to work. They, they love this place. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's by design. Our, our founders do an awful lot to basically take care of employees. You know, we've got a, we've got a pretty young group here, a lot of young families and stuff, but, you know, just events for employees and, um, you know, everything from, you know, margaritas and nachos on a Friday and, you know, set that up and, and we're now 650 people. So that's a fairly big deal. It's a big deal. Um, to, if we make our, if we make our big stretch goal every year, we take all of our employees and their spouses on a four day trip. We've gone to Cancun, the Bahamas, um, you know, and it's, it's trip of a lifetime for a lot of folks that probably oh, sure. wouldn't be able to get out of the country, Sure, but you know, flag football games, volleyball games, basketball tournaments, stuff like that. Just so my, um, I've noticed some stuff with advisors Excel over the years. I, I had a, a course or seminar that I ran about four or five years ago and David contacted me and he said he wanted to send two or three of the advisors from the company like that were clients of yours. He paid for them to come to the course. And mm-hmm. I was like, who does that? And he's like, well, I want to grow them. And it's like a great way to kind of give back. And then you even mentioned, well, you mentioned the, the margaritas and nachos. I, I walked past one of your conferences in Las Vegas about six or eight months ago. I was speaking at the other end of the convention center at this very boring industry on the furniture. And you guys were at the other end of the convention center. And uh, I walked in and there were, the culture of, of the, the conference was unbelievable. Like the, the, the stuff up on the walls and, and there was, it looked like it was all tied to like a gambling theme. But, and then they had the best donuts in the world. I kept stealing the donuts, <laughs> even though I wasn't at your conference and throwing them into my bag because I had to eat some of your donuts. Um, but it was really amazing to go around and just talk to some of the people blind and, and walk past some of the booze. And you could just feel the vibration of that culture. So it's, it's not going unnoticed. 
I think it was a Vegas. It was all in was the theme. So that's the reason it looked like that. Yep. But, um, but I, I've never been in a place that, you know, our customers liked us that much. Our employees liked us that much. Um, it, it's, it's changed me. I, I think I've developed more, more empathy. I think I lead differently from, you know, more of a motivational side rather than, you know, I, I don't ever, ever see myself as leading through fear, but I was, you know, I was pretty direct in what we needed to get done and how we needed to get it done. And now I try to build people up. You, you mentioned coaching a couple of times and you even mentioned that the business coaching area was part of the, um, the divisions that you run. Can you walk us through some of what you believe makes the coaching program work for your clients? And, and do you have like a, a mindset or a methodology or is it systems? Like what do you work with your coaches on so they deliver great coaching? So uh, actually all of our coaches are kind of um, independent really. So, you know, they've got different specialties. So each of our, the, the way we, the way we recruit advisors is we've got what we call marketing teams. And so those teams are trying to recruit the best advisors in the country to come to us. Those guys then end up being a coach for that advisor, but then we've got an external team that coaches advisors as well. So we've got, We've got a person that coaches on operational needs and stuff inside the business. We've got a, a marketing coach for them. We've got a coach that works with them on uh, succession planning. Um, you know, so really some specialties around that. And then from our marketing teams, they're really managing lead funnels and marketing funnels and, you know, best latest ideas to get in front of clients. Um, we've put out hundreds and hundreds of pieces for our advisors recruit new clients, you know, in a virtual world, how to connect with your existing client base and make sure that they're okay during these times. And, you know, so there, there's a number of different ways that they do that. Um, and probably our lead coach is David Callanan. Um, he actually gets in character at some of these events as coach Callanan, and he's got a whistle and a clipboard and a, and a hoodie and stuff and kind of does a little skit, but, you know, he's coaching them from a CEO role, mm. teaching them to be CEOs. You know, they're really, really strong sales and marketing people. Sure. But teaching them to be CEOs and, and you know, work on the business more than in the business. That's what every industry needs more than anything is to teach the CEOs how to actually be CEOs and to teach the leaders how to be leaders. Because it's like in every industry, when you go to the industry events, they're really good at their functional area that they run, or they're really good at the industry um, subject matter expertise, you know, like finance mm -hmm. or investing or insurance, but then they're terrible at interviewing people. They're terrible at hiring people. They're terrible at leading people. They're terrible at coaching. They're terrible at go to, you know, uh, delegation and time management and problems, all, all the soft skills of leadership. And, and you notice it really, really obviously in like dental practices and doctor's offices. It's like, these are horrible human beings that run in companies. It's <laughs> terrible. But then you ask them, it's like, so how much time did you ever get in dental school about running a business? And they said, oh, it was one, you know, one semester, one course. Yeah. I'm like, so yeah. you learned for seven years how to fix teeth and you learned for two months on how to run a company. It's no wonder you're not making any money. It's not about the teeth. All right. No, Exactly. So your growth, where have you grown as a leader? What have you focused on to, to adapt as a leader? Um, boy, a number of things. I mean, I read a lot. Um, I've hired personal coaches. One of my, one of my weaknesses still, I believe, is, is my presentation style. So from stage, 
and, and speaking ability. So I hired a coach to help me with that. Um, you know, it's reading, you know, best practices from a leadership standpoint, um, you know, how to lead through, through like a COVID type situation. I was actually talking to David Callen and there are no books on how to lead through something like this. Um, you know, the suggestions are, you know, read books on war. Chapter, chapter 11 of my book, Double Double, is how to grow and it's slow and how to grow through adversity. And it's all about the 2008, 2000, and 1988 um, downturns and how I led companies through all those. So there's no book that there is at least one chapter on it for you. I'll okay. send it to you. I'll, send I'll read it to the you. chapter. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. How else are you growing? You know, I think it's more of a, it's more of a maturity thing, really. It's, mm. I, you know, I would say I, I started out and I think we all, all do probably, you know, overly sure of ourselves and uh, with very little experience to back it up with. And so, you know, you, yeah, you make up, make up for that, kind of being a bull in a China shop, kind of being the loudest voice. And, you know, I, I think learning to connect with people and, and how to coach them and, you know, identifying their, their needs, their personality types, what they respond to and stuff. You know, it's, it's more of the, the soft skills of leadership, I guess you would say, and trying to develop those and, and connect with people, you know, they, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. It's so true. Yeah. By the way, when you were explaining that, I thought of another one that I'll send you as well, a resource. It's a book called the hard thing about hard things by a guy named Ben Horowitz, one of the top business books I've read in the last 10 years, but it talks a lot about the wartime CEO, not Mm -hmm. the wartime of like operating a business through World War II, but operating in these massive times of adversity and crisis and economic downturns. And I was really, really, I was scribbling notes the whole time I was going through that book recently. Well, I'm honestly hungry for that. And I can't imagine any leader that's not right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I look at this as, you know, the first few months of this situation is is driven by adrenaline. I've heard everybody talk about how well their companies did when they had to work from home and and adjust on the fly. That's all driven by adrenaline and that only lasts so long. You got it. And now it feels to me like we're in an endurance period and this is getting tough. I mean, it's tough to keep people upbeat and motivated and everything else because their their entire world's falling apart. Yeah, it's very tough right now. It's a very, very different time right now. And you're right that that leaders really, really have to lead right now. Followers are starving to follow. But if there isn't a prescription for it or a recipe, it's it's tough to be making it up on the fly. We've actually got our um, our September COO Alliance event coming up and it's all around growing and leading people. And um, we're covering things like situational leadership and the onboarding and ongoing training. We've got three different CEOs, one of Lessonly, one from Thinkific, and one from um, shoot another company. I can't remember what it is. And then I've also got the CEO of, of currently he's got a 4.9 rating on Glassdoor with about 184 reviews. Uh, they've mm. got 140 employees. They're all remote. And he was rated as the number two, two company to work for in the United States on Glassdoor. He's coming in to present as well on how to lead through this time with virtual team. So it's, it's something that we need to keep growing our people, right? If you're green, you're growing. When you're ripe, you're dead. Yep. Um, so by the way, just a quick thought for you on speaking. Cause I know you said that you're something you're working on with that. I'm not going to ask how old you are now, but we're about the same age, but you've been speaking your whole life. You know, you've been right. speaking, you've been speaking since you were two years old. So you know how to talk mm-hmm. and you know, the content don't try to script it. Don't try to present, just stand on stage and talk to your friends or talk to me or talk to whoever, like you're normally talking 
and you'll find that it's actually the easiest way to communicate to a group. Like when you hear David Kellanen talking to a group, he doesn't sound any different than when he's talking to you one-on-one or if he's talking at a cocktail party, does he? No, he doesn't. Yeah. So he doesn't, he doesn't present. Now he might wear a silly costume or something, but he really is just himself. Yeah. No, I, I think mine is more just the, the energy level, the voice inflection, stuff like that. I mean, I just, you've got um, good I'm, energy. You've got I'm good very, normal energy. <laughs> and, and maybe it's just self-critical. I don't know. No, but I, I think, I'm around, I, I, I'm around an awful lot of very good presenters in this company. And, and it wasn't until I got this company that I identified this as a real weakness. So I think it's because you're trying to present instead of trying to be Mike Miller, because you actually have a really nice energy about you. Good. I think if you would like, don't stand behind the podium and just walk around on stage and talk to us like you're talking to friends over beer or a game of golf. I think you'd actually be quite engaging. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I, I, I've, I've seen people try to present. It's like, hi, my name's Cameron Harold. I'm on stage presenting. It's like, yeah. dude, who are you? You sound horrible. Yeah. Right. It sounds all schlocky. Anyway, I don't know. Um, what about the, the, so through the COVID, you guys have got a fairly big team. I'm not going to ask you specific numbers, but you're, you're, you know, I'm, I'm guessing like 250 plus 500 employees is probably. Yeah, we're, we're a little over 650 right now. Yeah, so 650 employees. And all of a sudden, from out of left field, you're told, sorry, you can't come to work. You got to work from home. Um, how did you go through that? What, how did you adapt or adopt? Like, what did you do? What, 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 what did you tell the team? Um, how did you figure some stuff out? What, what, were, what did you do? Um, well, I mean, it, it, it is what it is, right? So you've got to basically just present the facts. Um, I, I basically presented, you know, a confidence level. Um, you know how to do your job. You've got the tools to do your job. We're going to send those tools home with you and trust that you can do the job, but we're going to be here to help you as well. And, you know, I had my, my managers make sure that they were staying in real close contact with their teams, you know, like they would in the office, the daily team meetings and stuff like that, the check-ins, the one-on-ones, that type of stuff. And so we sent them home with, you know, a laptop and one monitor. And so that was an adjustment. Um, and, you know, so there were some technical glitches and stuff like that. But just, again, I think the adrenaline and just some really good working Midwest people, you know, they're going to get the job done. Right. So the culture comes from the energy and the people being together. And, you know, so we, we even started working on different games they could play and stuff like that and different events that they could do virtually and, you know, just to keep the teams engaged. But, but doing it like this versus doing, you know, an in-person gathering and yeah, just the, the in-person energy that you get from that right. just can't be replaced via Zoom, it, you know. Well, you touched on something that I think is really important as well. And you talked about, you know, the, the, these Midwest people are just going to kind of figure it out and get it done. It speaks to the culture of the people that you've hired, not just really the region that you're in, but because there's lots of people in the Midwest that work for government or the post office that aren't going to get anything done. Um, you've, you've hired the ones that are good core values people that are driven, that have got the skill set, that feel like they're a part of the team. They feel the love of the, the connection and the team that you guys are building as a company. And, and because they know you care about them, they're going to care about the organization. But what I think is really interesting about that as well is that the reason you're okay with them all working from home is because you have the right people. 
I, I spoke with somebody recently and they said, you know, I've got to, how do I keep an eye on everybody when they're working from home and how do I know what they're doing? I'm like, if you're worried about that, you've got the wrong people. Like yeah. if you, if you have to micromanage them because they're at home, they're the wrong people. So how have you as an organization scaled from the, the 50 or 200 employees when you joined to 650 now? How have you scaled in bringing the right people in? What do you screen for? What do you do? What is your secret sauce? Um, well, I mean, one of the benefits of being in a smaller town in the Midwest, I mean, Topeka is about 200,000 people, I think. So we actually pull a lot of people in from even smaller and more rural areas outside of town. Okay. Um, I... I couldn't even guess how many people we've got that came from a farm family. So woke up doing chores in the morning at six o'clock before they went to school and stuff like that, or athletes. Um, mm. Our three founders actually met at a, at a local Washburn university. And uh, one I know was an athlete. I'm not sure about the other two, but we ended up with a lot of, a lot of athletes coming in here and just, just the mindset and the work ethic of a, of a college athlete, the effort that they have to put in. I mean, you know, effort's not a foreign concept to some of these folks. And, and I do look at where they came from, what, what their family background is, what their, you know, not only educational, but sports background is. Mm -hmm. And we do a lot of sports analogies and stuff like that, you know, just in normal conversation and, and presentations and stuff to the team and it resonates with them. We even create internal competitions, but as far as screening for people, um, we don't have to do a lot of screening because we've got a pretty good reputation now and we've got people lined up that are no 15 people in the company. So we kind of vet them internally, I guess. And you've probably turned away all the wrong people too. So the wrong people don't want to have anything to do with you because they know they don't fit. Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a few that get through. You always have, you always have something. But no, I think we do a pretty good job overall. Now, you talking even about like the small town values, and they had to get up in the morning on the farm and do chores. They asked Herb Kelleher, the CEO of, of Southwest Airlines, how do you how do you get all your employees to smile like like you do? And he said, Well, we hire smiley people. And hmm. it's kind of like if you want people that are really good at being team players, hire people that have been on teams. And if you want to, you don't train people to have a work ethic. They either wake up in the morning with a work ethic or they don't. Yep. Right. They're either, they're either lazy or they're not, they're either driven or they're not. You can't, tr you, you might be able to inspire a little bit of it, but it's either there or it's not. Yeah. We actually do. Um, I think it's a four level interview. So by the time I'm talking to folks, they've already been through and, and, you know, my managers and stuff that are going to be managing them day to day have approved them and moved them on. So the only thing I'm looking for is cultural fit. And I want to basically set an expectation for them. So I'm talking to them about team. I'm talking to them about attitude, everything else. And by the end of the interview, I'm, I'm telling them, I haven't asked you one question about, you know, your job and how the job and how you're going to do it. That's because I'm willing to train the right person. And I know you probably don't have any experience at all in this based on your resume. And I mean, they're, they're kind of bought in at that point. They want to be part of the team and they know we're going to support them and train them. And then one of the greatest things I think about Advisors Excel is our owners interview everybody that comes in here. Still. And still, yeah. So they'll go through anywhere from a 30 to 45 minute interview with every person coming in the door, whether it's entry level, whether it's a top sales position, executive position. And I think that speaks volumes to the folks walking through the door. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, I've worked with groups that say they coach two layers below them, they'll, they'll interview, but I've never heard of at that 600 person where the C, C level is still doing that, which is amazing. Yeah. It speaks volumes. 
Where does the organization struggle right now? Um, well, again, with the whole COVID thing, it's just, you know, it's, it's maintaining culture. Mm. And, and I would say we've not struggled with it, but been mindful of it for quite some time. We, we just moved to a two campus environment. So it used to be all of the employees under one roof and we were pretty much stacked on top of each other. So now we're in three different buildings and just trying to main that, maintain that camaraderie and that team, team spirit stuff. Um, we learned pretty quickly that every individual location is going to kind of take on its own personality and culture. And we need to allow that, Yeah. but we need to make sure that the core values are still, you know, across the entire organization. Um, are the three, are the three buildings like on a campus together or are they separate parts of the city or two are in a separate part of the city? And then the one main, uh, headquarters building. How are you working around the us and them environment of kind of the leadership team with the um, the people working from those remote locations? How do you work around that, you know, where you have the leadership team in one building and then people working from two other buildings? Well, the, the leadership is uh, is dispersed as well. So I'm in a building with um, the well, one six of the operational teams and our licensing and contracting team is in this building. Um, we've got our CFO and our CTO in another building with the technology group and the, uh, and the accounting folks. And then we've got basically hotel offices in each of the buildings. So our two founders actually make the rotation. They're here once or twice a month and just, you know, walking around, talking to folks, being present. And we do, uh, we do all employee meetings once a month, uh, religiously they're, you know, like clockwork and it's, you know, keeping the message, the same message in front of everybody. And again, allowing kind of a different culture and a kind of some uniqueness among the teams, but also bringing it all together and keeping it core. And I think, I think having the founders, the co-CEOs at different locations at different times is really helpful for that. Well, and, and you're touching on something that I think is really important and that it's culture, really culture is not about the, after work activities and what the each of the individual locations looks like as much as culture is about alignment with core values alignment with the core purpose alignment with the vivid vision you know a deep respect for each other and working together as a team that's what culture is about the rest of it is kind of like the it's like the window dressings right it's like you know you could take a family and they live in a home and you can take that same family on vacation, the culture, the culture went from the home to the, to where you're staying in a hotel. It had nothing to do with where you're living. Right. No, I, I would say all the stuff, all the, you know, chips and margaritas and trips and everything else lose pretty quickly. You know, if you don't have the leadership aspects that, that, you know, are really core to the culture. Yeah. Except it's, you know, three o'clock on a Friday and you've mentioned, you know, margaritas and nachos a few times now it's starting to, to, it's starting to call me. Well, I had to, I had to put it off for this call. So (laughs) you're getting in the way of my Friday afternoon. All right. I've got one, one final big question related to your industry that I think is always intrigued me. How does a really good growth company like advisors Excel work within slash around the compliance of, and the regulatory of the finance industry? Like, it's always like, I can't do that ad because we can't do this or we can't use Slack because of that. Like you've got a lot of regulations around your industry. How do you work around those or through those? Well, you do, you basically do, you do the best you can. I mean, the, the regulations, I think you've got to, first of all, 
take a view towards regulation as it's there for a purpose and it's there, there's an intent with it. Um, I think too many, you know, compliance officers and regulatory bodies, you know, lose sight of the intent and try to delve into the letter of the law and stuff. And it's like catch people type thing. Right. That's, that's really not our view of it. Our view of it is, you know, the intent of the, the regulation is to do right by the client. And as long as we're doing right by the client, and we'll push some of those regulatory things. So, I mean, if, you know, if it's a, if it's a word in an ad, that's going to cause a problem. I mean, we'll change it up if we need to, but you know, I, I hate to say push the envelope because it's not anything big, but still we're staying within the spirit of the, the regulatory effort and right. making sure that we're maintaining the, the client's best interest at heart. I've actually done, done a number of presentations with my, my personal group, my group that reports through my organization. And again, because they're, they're younger, I, I tell them to think of their grandparents. So, you know, we're working directly with the advisors. They're investing your grandparents money that they basically saved 45 years for so that they can be in retirement. It now has to last them the rest of their life and give them the quality of life that they need. You know, look out for your grandparents and, and remember that this is, you know, this is somebody's life savings you're dealing with. We get pretty numb to big numbers, mm. but you know, every one of these individual cases is somebody's life savings. It's a great way to think about it. That allows them to frame the decisions of what they're working on within that, instead of thinking about some compliance officer who says you can or can't do something because of some rule that doesn't make any sense. Right. All right, Mike Miller, if you were the 22-year-old Mike Miller leaving college, getting ready to start off in your career, what, what advice would you give yourself back then that you know now you know it to be true, but you wish you'd known at 22? I listened to your podcast with uh, Brett Pingar, mm. and I heard you ask him this question, so I've actually given it some thought. Okay. Um, I tell myself at 22 that I know now. Uh, it was hard to narrow in on one of them. Um, I think I would, I would say it's not about making the best decision. It's about executing the best on the decision. Mm. And the reason I come up with that is I've, I've gone through my career and you know, questioned other leaders that I worked for as to whether it was the best decision. You know, none of us ever know whether we're making the best decision. We, we make mistakes all the time. Totally. It's, you know, disagree and commit. You know, I, I don't want you doing the job and, you know, in the back of your mind thinking this was a bad decision, we're going the wrong direction, not giving it your full effort, because even on, you know, the fourth best decision, you can still win all day, every day with the best execution. I like that. It's interesting. I think back to, um, I'll probably mess up the quote, but I think it was General Patton that said a good plan violently executed now is better than a perfect plan next week. Right. Yeah. Right. Same idea. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. All right, Mike Miller, Chief Operating Officer from Advisors Excel. Thanks very much for joining us on the Second in Command podcast. And um, I really, really appreciate the time today. Thank you, Cameron. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to us on Himalaya for access to our premium content. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.